0: I want to commend you guys for your passion for the Lord and your worship. I also want to especially thank Pastor Bob because, and I think Michael Card, Michael can tell you that when you go around and you talk about the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, a lot of times you're met with a little bit of a blank stare. Huh? <laughs> and, uh, but you guys are, are all cued in and ready to go. And I appreciate the fact that you all know that Jesus is Jewish, right? The disciples, Peter, John, and James were all Jews. All the writers of the New Testament, with the possible exception of Luke, were Jewish, right? And Luke was a doctor, so who knows? But when Pastor Bob invited me to come, I have to tell you, this is the first time I've been asked to share about Christ and the Feast of Tabernacles at a Men's Retreat. So you guys have set a record here, all right? Thank you for that. So I'm looking forward to tonight. And, uh, you know, if you look at Leviticus chapter 23, we're going there. And um, that's where we'll start, but that's not where we're going to end. We're going to end in the book of Revelation. So fasten your (laughs) seatbelt because that's what the feasts do for us. There are seven feasts of the Lord that are found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, and this one is the last. And so just knowing that God gave the feasts of Israel in order to reveal something of his nature, first of all, and something of his plan of redemption in each of these festivals, when you get to the last feast, you pretty much know where the symbolism is headed. All right, and that's where we'll end up tonight, but I'm excited to unpack this for you. And, you know, of the seven feasts, there are only three that are mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, tells us what makes makes these three festivals different from the other seven. Now, for my Jewish people, these festivals are more like big Jewish Thanksgiving celebrations, you know? And uh, it's like, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. (laughs) But the richness of the symbolism is captured, and in these three festivals, God says, three times a year shall all your men go up to Jerusalem. And so this required getting out of the pew and getting on the road To go up to worship the Lord. And this was a huge gathering, and the Psalms of Ascent are all about the hymnal that Israel sang as they went up to Jerusalem. And so these three, and this one is, is the third of the three, is called the Aliyah festivals. Aliyah is the Hebrew word that means to go up. And from the perspective of the biblical writers, you could be at the top of Mount Everest. And if you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up. You're going up to the place the Lord chose to put His name. And all of the promise concerning the future of Jerusalem is wrapped up in all of this. And I'm going to say this right now because you're going to otherwise be wondering about it all night. What do I think about the U.S. moving the embassy to Jerusalem? Huh? Listen, I don't usually get involved in politics, but on this one, I'm delighted. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's about time. But it's not about the political state of Israel. It's about what God said his name means in that place and will mean for the future. And we're going to see that. At, you know, I remember the first time I went to Jerusalem, I was with uh, the music team from Jews for Jesus called the Liberated Wailing Wall. I don't know if you've ever heard of us before, but we sing Jewish gospel music kind of a cross between Israeli folk and Fiddler on the Roof. It's great stuff. And, Michael, I can say that one of the top ten questions we were asked in every place we went was, what does Come er mean? <laughs> one of the great songs that Michael wrote. But I was in Jerusalem with this music group, and we were standing at the top of the Hamashbir, which is the great, uh, like, Sears or Macy's department store, in this wonderful pedestrian mall, and we were singing. And we were all wearing T-shirts that said, Yehudiman Yeshua, Jews for Jesus, so they knew who we were. And most Israelis are secular, right? So they're getting into the music. And there's people smiling and clapping. There's a little bit of Israeli folk dancing going off to the side. I'm thinking, praise the Lord. Here we are preaching the gospel right on the streets of Jerusalem. And then I noticed out of the corner of my eye five yeshiva bookers. Now, that's the young ultra-Orthodox seminary students. Maybe you've seen pictures with the black hats and the the side curls. And they were walking towards us with a look of grim determination on their faces. and, And I knew we were in trouble. And sure enough, these guys got right up on our faces. And one of them reached out to grab the hand of the violinist, the bow, as she was bowing, and to wrench the bow out of her hand. And now I'm thinking, great. We're going to get martyred now on the streets of Jerusalem. And right at that point, up walked this Israeli guy. He was a giant of a man, about as tall as Pastor Bob. He was completely bald with a big handlebar mustache. He kind of looked like Jesse Ventura, you know. And he gets up in these guys' faces and he says, you touch them and I'll touch you. And they backed off, you know, and we were able to continue ministering. And I thought to myself, praise God. The Bible says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him to deliver them from harm. I just never knew he looked like Jesse Ventura. (laughs) But Jerusalem is ground zero for the conflict of all the ages. It's the place that God placed his name. And in the Scriptures, we find that this is where the Feast of Tabernacles is is to be celebrated. In the temple, we'll see how Jesus celebrated. So let's look at Leviticus 23. Just a few of the verses here. Verse 33 and 34. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. Then skip down to verse 39. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, When you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days." You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days. In the year, it shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God." So this is the scripture teaching concerning this great feast. Se- seven days, actually eight full days of celebration. It's one of the greatest parties in all of the Jewish religion. And if you've never been in Jerusalem on the Feast of Tabernacles, that's a sight to behold because all of the streets are filled with people moving down to the Kotel, the Western Wall, to celebrate And they're trying, in a sense, to reenact what God gave to Israel long ago. And there are commands that we've read, and there are symbols that we've had described. The commands are this. First of all, the command to remember. Let's go to the next slide there. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. And that's where we get the name, the Feast of Tabernacles or... Sukkot, which is the same word in Hebrew. And that's what Israelites, Jewish people, call this festival, usually not the Feast of Tabernacles, but Sukkot. And this is, thanks guys who built this, Uh, this is kind of like what the booth looks like. You can see it on the screen as well. Because we're to remember our wilderness wanderings, That we, even if we were, uh, you know, in the most comfortable environment, the Waldorf Astoria in downtown Jerusalem. They have one, believe it or not. That we were never to forget, as the old spiritual says, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. And that we are wandering. We're on a journey. And that journey, God took us from slavery in Egypt through the wilderness And that was part of his redemptive plan. And so from beginning with Passover to the end with tabernacles, we've got this theme of redemption, of salvation. And that's what God wants us to do, to remember. Because we're so easily forgetting, aren't we? We get comfortable with all the junk we can pile up under one or two mortgages. And God says, hey, guess what? You've got to get out of that home. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. You've got to go and, and kind of put together a, a, a sukkah, a, 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 a reminder of how you were in the wilderness because you're still on a journey. You're still passing through. You're still on a, a, a wilderness journey. So if you go to Israel, you're going to see these booths all over the place. Some guy was telling me that he does a lot of contracting work in the Jewish neighborhoods outside of Philly, and he sees them all in the backyard. Some of them are really nice and fancy. And you go to Israel and they put them up on their balconies because a lot of people live in, you know, apartments. And so you can sometimes see little satellite dishes poking through the roof. But the point is not the comfort but outside the comfort zone. And so we're to go into the booth and we're to eat a meal there. And uh, you have a cookie in the suki we say. And, uh, and there's another... that we're supposed to do, and that is to invite the stranger and the foreigner and maybe the homeless in for a meal during this time to remember that we're all on the same plane, that God is the one who provides all of our needs. And so this is one of those commands, remember. And then the other command is to rejoice. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of of beautiful trees. And the rabbis have decided that there's one fruit that represents all of them. It grows in Israel. We don't see it very much, and I couldn't even get a hold of one for this event. It's called the citron, uh, or an etrog. It's kind of like a, a lemon, only much bigger. And you have to pay like a thousand bucks to get one that's just right, according to the rabbis. It's incredible. The only time I've seen them used in the United States is when they've been put into fruitcake, okay? And that's one of them right there in that picture. And then the lulav is the way that it has been worked out in the Scriptures to use the willow and the myrtle and the palm. And what you do is you take the citron and the lulav and you go in to the sukkah and you do some thanks to God for the harvest that he's brought and we remember that God has provided for us and so we we take the the elements of the harvest that are represented by the lulav and the etrog and we go up and we go down and we go to the north and the south and the east and the west and we do the hokey pokey and we turn ourselves about and that's what it's all about to praise God for his provision for the harvest and these symbols and these commands the command to rejoice, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure how this helps us, but it's its kind of a funny thing. When you actually celebrate it, you have to kind of get outside of yourself to to do the shaking. And uh, it's, it's weird, you know, that we, we have to have a command from God to rejoice because usually, you know, is that the face that you, you know, that you carry around with you all the time? It's usually we fall into a frown, and so we have to rejoice. And the sukkah and the lulav and the etrog are all a way of remembering and rejoicing. Paul kind of was hinting at this when he says in Philippians chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say, rejoice. And that's because we need to be reminded to rejoice. And that's part of what this feast is all about. And, and all throughout... The, the rest of the Older Testament, from Leviticus through to the end, you see various references to this festival, sometimes when Israel failed to celebrate, other times when it became the imagery for God's future events, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But when you come to the New Testament, there's been a lot of development that has happened within the Jewish faith about how to celebrate it because it's gone from being just a celebration For the wilderness to what God said would happen when he would place his name in that place which became Jerusalem and when the temple was built. And we know all this because in the rabbinic literature there's something that's called the Talmud. And the Talmud kind of records a lot of things that happened both in the time of, you know, uh, Hillel. We were talking about Hillel last night. All the way up through uh, the time of Jesus and there's one tractate of the Talmud called Sukkah and you know what that's about and so we find all these things about it in that and that confirm some of the things that Jesus was talking about you know uh, some of you are familiar with the fact that uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration which occurred right after uh, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi they went up on a mountain remember? Well, I think that's right there, (laughs) right around where Caesarea Philippi was, Mount Hermon, the tallest mountain in Israel. Oftentimes you can see it's snow-capped. But remember what happened in in Mark chapter 9. It's recorded. We're in the Gospel of Mark, so why don't we turn there? Mark uh, chapter 9, this is uh, recorded in other Gospels as well. But now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them. So what they're beginning to see, these guys are looking at the future. They're looking at the kingdom. They're looking at the glory that is to come. They don't know what it is, but Jesus' clothes become shining exceedingly white like snow such as no laundered on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Now get this. You know, we Peter gets a bad rap, doesn't he? A lot of times, he's the guy who open mouth, insert foot. Well, this is one of those times I've heard a lot. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. All right, well... Some people say, Peter, you just keep your mouth shut. Well, it's not that Peter didn't know what he was thinking and those words just came out. What Peter did know was that this one festival is the only festival that is enjoined upon all the nations and that the future, according to Zechariah chapter 14 will come about after the deliverance. And all of the nations that fought against Israel will come up to Jerusalem to do what? To celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And so I understand what was going through Peter's mind. The same word, Shhinah, in the Greek, is Sukkah in the Hebrew. And Peter's saying, wow, we're seeing the kingdom. This is the glory. I guess the best thing for us to do is to start the party. We're going to build some Sukkot for these guys, and we'll get the party started right here on Mount Hermon. Well, Peter had the right idea. He was just off by a couple thousand years, you see. But the whole of the imagery of the Feast of Tabernacles flows throughout the Scriptures. And, and I want to show you Jesus celebrating the feasts because, you know, the one wonderful thing about uh, Jesus is that he loved to celebrate. He loved to party too. In fact, the only place in the Bible you'll find mention of Hanukkah is in John chapter 10 when Jesus is celebrating it. And in John chapter 7, we see some of the insights of what developed in the Jewish faith concerning Sukkah, Sukkot, and how Jesus himself incorporated things that were actually, in a sense, extra-biblical, but are a part of what the Jewish people did during the days of the First and Second Temple to celebrate this great last feast. And so there's this big argument in the beginning, John chapter 7. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And if you were to read on, you'd see his brothers start goading him. Jesus had to deal with rejection from his own family. You know, we were talking last night about how, you know, he, his family thought he was crazy. And maybe some of your families think <laughs> you're crazy too. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus says, ah, I'm not going to go up, but then he does. He goes up to the feast, and then we're going to flip over to to verse 37, and we're going to put that up on the screen here so you can see it. These are really amazing symbols, and it says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow mayim chayim, rivers of living water. And here's the backdrop. It's called the water-drawing ceremony that was developed, and you can read about it in the Talmud. And on the last day, which is called Hoshana Rabbah, the big salvation, all of the priests would in great procession with music and instruments, they would march down. First of all, they had to actually go outside in the first temple, outside of the city to the brook of Kidron. But then under Hezekiah, they built a a tunnel, which you can walk through today. If you go with Pastor Bob, you see this amazing architecture of tunneling through the rock and bringing the water to the pool of Siloam. And all these priests, usually the younger ones, right, they'd get these giant cisterns of water, and then they'd march up from the pool of Siloam, no small feet, it's a distance, to the temple. And the other priests would be singing and dancing from Isaiah chapter 12. With joy we draw water from the wells of salvation. And they pour this water out on the altar and it would flow down the steps and down through the court of the women, through the court of the Gentiles. Water everywhere. Water, the symbol of life, the symbol of redemption, the symbol of cleansing and it's at that very moment on the last day, the great day of the feast, that Jesus says, hey, <laughs> anyone who thirsts, it's not the pool of Siloam. It's me. Come to me. And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water, this mayim Chaim that you're singing about. Mayim hai. Yeshua. That's Jesus' name. They're singing his name, and he says, come to me. What an amazing thing that he would use this high point, this climax, if you will, of the greatest feast, the last feast to say, hey, it's all about me. And and John goes on to tell us he was talking about the Holy Spirit. That wonderful imagery is also captured in another aspect of the development of the Feast of Tabernacles as recorded in the Talmud. And, And in fact, It's called the illumination ceremony, and uh, the Talmud says, he who has not beheld this celebration has never seen true joy. It's one of the ways that the rabbis have said, we're going to bring joy into this celebration in any way we possibly can. And so what they would do is, this one would happen at night, and the priests would take the old linen garments that were kind of getting worn out, and they'd use them as wicks, and they'd dip them in olive oil, specially prepared for the event, and they'd have these giant candelabras, and they'd get up there, and they'd climb up, and they'd light them. And the torches that they were juggling and the candelabras that were burning, it was like daytime, even though it was night in Jerusalem. And then Jesus spoke to them again and said, I am the light of the world, He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And, you know, most people don't see the connection between the Feast of Tabernacles and the light because there's this great story in between about the woman caught in adultery. And so that story absolutely is Scripture. But the placement of it in John kind of hides the fact that it's still the Feast of Tabernacles, only now it's night it's the last day, the great celebration. And Jesus again uses the symbols of Sukkot, of the Feast of Tabernacles, to say, I am not only the Mayim Chaim, I'm the Or HaOlam, I'm the light of the world. And Jewish people to this very day have celebrations that kind of mimic, not mimic, but, you know, pattern themselves after. These great ceremonies. Because we don't have the temple anymore. A lot of people want to see it rebuilt. But we have, uh, in fact, I wrote a book about the Christ and the Feast of Tabernacles that has a messianized version of this ceremony. So you build the sukkah. You have ushpazim, which is that you invite people in. And I want to invite you guys. Maybe, I don't know how we're going to do communion, but uh, if you want to maybe come and, and bless the Lord from inside this tabernacle and remember how he's provided for you, do that and worship the Lord and remember and rejoice in the salvation God brought. But we take the, uh, the pitcher of water and we sing, Yeshua." With joy we draw water from the wells of salvation, remembering the water-drawing ceremony. And then we light candles, Baruch atah Asher lahadlik Ner Tov Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and commanded us to kindle the festival lights. And so through all of this, through this great feast, Jewish people today still commemorate. Both the wilderness wanderings, the temple that stood in Jerusalem. And yet, Peter had something when he talked about the future. He knew what Zechariah said about the nations. His timing was off, as I said before. And so, what was going on? What, what, what was going to happen? What Peter didn't know was that the Feast of Tabernacles isn't just about the party. It's about the harvest. And there's a great harvest. And we're not just talking about the harvest in the land. That's Those three festivals that God gave, the Aliyah Feast, were all connected to harvest in the land. And this was the way that God anchored the people of Israel to the land of Israel that he had promised them. But the harvest is not just about that. It's about people about people. And what Peter may not have understood was that that harvest needed to come to his own people. And while he saw the first fruits of that in the book of Acts, we're still waiting. We're still waiting. And I believe we're getting very close to that harvest, that future harvest. And, and in fact, we're sowing seed now for the harvest that's yet to come. There's going to be an enemy of the Jewish people, of God, of God's people who will arise against the nation of Israel. And this enemy makes Yasser Arafat look like a good friend. You see, from the world's perspective, this man of sin looks like a great leader. He looks like somebody who is wise, a peacemaker. But from heaven's perspective, he's like a beast coming up out of the sea. And he will deceive the nations. And he will gather their armies together to invade the beautiful land. The Bible tells us where that invasion will occur. In the plain of Megiddo. If you go there with Pastor Bob or if you go there with anybody, you're going to be there. You're going to look out over the place where Elijah faced down the prophets of Baal. And you're going to look down you're going to see the most lush agriculture in the land, right there, that valley of Jezreel. Napoleon Bonaparte marched his armies through there and said, this is the greatest natural battlefield in the world. And he's right. Because it's the straits, the staging ground for the mother of all wars. Cutting the north off from the south, the invading armies begin the fight that is the last battle. Down, down, down to where? The city of Jerusalem. Ground zero for the cosmic conflict of all the ages. And now the city is surrounded. A lethal dagger is poised and pointed at the heart of the nation of Israel. God, who promised they would exist before him forever, must come through now, or the end is at hand. Israel, having heard the messengers, the 144,000, the prophets, the, 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 the prophets who died in the streets of Jerusalem and were raised back to life, they've heard But now they've come to the very end of themselves. And at this critical hour, they cry out to God for a deliverer. And that is when he comes. The Bible says you hear it and then you see it. The Lord himself shall descend with a shout. (laughs) What does the shout of the creator of the universe sound like? (laughs) In my imagination, it begins like a rumble. It gets louder and louder and louder until all warfare ceases. All activity on the planet comes to a screeching halt and all attention is grabbed towards the skies. We see the clouds roll back as a scroll and the brightness of a, of a thousand noonday suns fills our vision. And there's the one we've been waiting for. Hallelujah. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And as he descends, and as his foot touches the Mount of Olives, that mountain is split from east to west. And then is fulfilled the promise of the prophet Zechariah, who said in chapter 12, And I will pour out upon the house of David, and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn as one mourns for an only son, and weep bitterly as in the weeping of a firstborn. And in that day, a great fountain will be opened in Jerusalem for cleansing and for purification, and thus all Israel will be saved. Hallelujah. That's the harvest that's yet to come. And what a harvest it is. I believe it, and that's why I do what I do. Because I know who wins in the end. And you're on that team, too. And we get to be a part of it. And I don't think that any of us, personally, will be on terra firma when that happens. That's just my personal view? I think we're going to be returning with Christ in the air. But those who remain, who, especially the nations that have fought against Jerusalem that remain... That's probably a, a thinned-out population, wouldn't you say, after the man of, uh, comes on the white horse? Nevertheless, they get to come up to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And you know what? Even that's not the end. Because we know that this feast is the imagery for all that the book of Revelation tells us about what awaits us. And I saw... A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her groom. An amazing image of a city that we can't even imagine being built because its builder and maker is God. (laughs) Human hands cannot construct such an unusual construction. But the Bible tells us that a voice is heard. Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's where we're all headed. What a glorious picture, all the imagery. If you go to the next chapter, Revelation 22, there's this amazing river of water, the Mayim Chaim, that's flowing from the throne of God, coming down, and, and there's f- the tree of life on every side of this river that has 12 different kinds of fruit growing on it. And there's, all, there's never a, a, a winter. There's never a, 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 a... It's always harvest. Always feel free to go grab some fruit, guys, because it's always there. And this is all, and, and the saints who are around the throne are dressed in white robes like the priests who ministered in the temple on the Feast of Tabernacles. All of this is tabernacle imagery, all of it telling us this world is not our home. <laughs> we're just the passing through. And I I think God wants us all to feel like we're on a journey. That tabernacles is pointing us in the direction of what is and what is to come we in Jews for jesus have been trying to figure out what to do about that and we realize that all of history is headed toward this conclusion and we have now the largest branch of juice for jesus in the world in israel and i want to tell you just briefly something that i need your prayers for uh, Pastor Bob knows about this. For the past number of years, actually this is the 18th year, Jews for Jesus has been having saturation evangelistic outreaches in every city with a Jewish population of 25,000 or more. It started in San Francisco, our headquarters, in 2000, 2001. And now we're at 2018. And we've saved the best for last. Yeah, coming up this year is Behold Your God. Jerusalem, we're going to have 70 of our staff doing things in Jerusalem. And it's not going to be your typical Jews for Jesus campaign because that would be very short-lived. <laughs> you remember the story about my first time in Jerusalem. That can happen in an instant. So we've got 10 prongs of outreach. And I just want to share some of the highlights of what we're gonna be doing in Jerusalem this year so that you might pray for us. First of all, we got some university and yeshiva teams, young guys. Uh, Hebrew University is one of the most well-respected, well-regarded universities in the world. And it's the biggest university in Israel. And we're already there, it's really cool. We have, we, in fact, uh, this week, <laughs> we got a bunch of students from Moody Bible Institute, who are joining our staff to to prototype some of the things that we'll be doing there later this year. We've got, you know, iPads with surveys and little videos that we go around. We've already done this. Every time we go to Hebrew University, there's at least 75 students that will fill out the survey and give us their contact information because it's very easy. We say, if you want to know the results of the survey, just give us your email address. And they do. And we have that contact, and we invite them to be friends on our Facebook page, and we do all these things to connect with yeshiva and university students. Another, uh, we'll go through this quickly because I I don't want to make a big deal about it, but there's more prongs of outreach. You really need to uh, fasten your seatbelt for it. Let's go to the next slide. This is the big one. Haredi is the Hebrew word for the ultra-orthodox. About 80% of Jerusalem is Uh, ultra-Orthodox. Haredi ladies, the women and the men don't associate. And so we're having teams of guys and gals who have already prototyped ministry. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but there's all this going on. Why? Because we believe that we need to sow seed now for a harvest that's yet to come. The future harvest that the Feast of Tabernacles imagines. And we expect this to be the biggest challenge that we've ever had in our ministry. And we've been praying about it for years. And this conclusion doesn't necessarily herald the return of Christ, but it sure gets us excited about it. and I hope it does you as well. We've got 190 Christians from different churches who are sending short-term missions teams who will be working with NGOs to deal with the poverty And the homelessness in Jerusalem, which is the greatest need physically. And, you know, there's just so much there that you wouldn't expect if you hadn't been there to see it. Drugs, alcohol, prostitution, homelessness, all of those needs and more. So would you pray? Would you pray for Behold Your God, Jerusalem? Obviously, we haven't announced the dates, and we're not going (laughs) to. We don't want to give those who will oppose us any head start on what we expect, but we're going to be protected by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and the prayers of the saints. I want to include you in that. Will you pray for us? We really need that, and we know that it's not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit. And I'm just so, so glad to be able to share that because this is only the second time in a public setting that I've talked about this. So please don't post it on Twitter <laughs> or Facebook. But it's coming, and you'll hear more about it. If you don't yet get materials from Juice for Jesus, you can go online, sign up for getting our email. Every month I do a, like a short three- to five-minute video teaching an update on what's going on in the world. Just go to juiceforjesus.org. Wow, I get excited about this. I hope you do too. And I want to bless you guys. We're going to be entering into a time of worship, uh, remembering the Lord's death and resurrection through communion. And as that happens, I hope that you also remember what Paul said, that in doing this, we show forth the Lord's death until he come again. (laughs) Isn't that great? We have the symbols of it right here. So please stand with me. In the book of Numbers, chapter 6, God gave the sons of Aaron a blessing. He said, bless my people with this blessing, and they will be blessed. First in Hebrew, and then in English, and then we'll worship together. Would you bow your heads, please? Yevare Adonai va yshmarecha Adonai Panavalecha yikuna ikah Adonai Panavalecha ve Lecha Shalom May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. Bashem Yeshua Sar Hashalom. In the name of Jesus our Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Amen.